Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am Dan Newman. I am joined, as always, by my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing? I am doing very well, Dan. You know, when you suggested that tonight's topic, I was kind of like, uh, did we kind of cover that with the episode about the Orioles? And are we, are we going a little too like New York centric? And is it too recent? We just did a baseball episode from a, a you know year and a half before that, all this stuff. Um, but as I'm doing my research, I kind of realized that this is one of the very few teams and topics that I am sort of unapologetically openly romantic about from a sports standpoint you know a lot of what we do here is talking about the history of things and i think me especially you as well but like i know me personally i I take a little bit of pride in sort of like when we did the 94 strike episode going like i don't want to hear about like the millionaires against the billionaires and the fans get shut out you know like sort of taking some of the excess narrative away from some of this stuff but the time and the team for me, you know, I was in fifth grade. You're just getting old enough to be able to sort of watch a team still with like the innocence of a kid. But like, you know, when you're five, how much do you really know about what's going on? You know what I mean? Yeah. So as I was getting more and more into this, I was kind of like, you know, doing the research. I was sort of like, yeah, probably second only to the 07 Giants. This is the team that I have sort of the most, um, Romantic sounds weird, but it's the team I have sort of the most nostalgic feelings about unapologetically. Yeah. And we're here to talk about the 1996 Yankees. And this is a topic that I've wanted to do for a while. We talked originally about doing it in 2021 when it was a 25 year anniversary of the team and, you know, whatever the year just kind of got away from us with other stuff. And we figure with um, baseball season in its first couple of months, this would be a good time for it. This is my favorite team of all time that I I mean, I guess in general, you know, both historically and that I remember there's just there's so many stories just looking through the roster. There's like 20 guys here that you can tell that were really just a part of this story and the Yankees dynasty kind of gets grouped into it's this 96 to 01 dynasty of four championships, five world series appearances in six years. And it's, you know, that's viewed as kind of the golden age of the Yankees. This 96 team is different. I think they're different. First of all, because they weren't expected to win. Nobody thought, I don't think anybody thought they were going to beat the Braves in the World Series until they won game five. After game four, people, I think, thought they had a chance. 
with that amazing comeback. But I don't think it was until game five where people thought, wow, the Yankees are really going to win. And then the roster in 96 is a lot different than the roster in future years. Guys like John Wetland, Wade Boggs, Doc Gooden, Mariano Duncan, Lay Ritz, Jimmy, Jimmy Key. Key. It is a very different team in 96 than it was even two years later when you started to get the Knobloks and the first David Wells and then Clemens, you know, Brocious. Mike Stanton, Posada's up then. Brocious, you said, is the other one. You know, Ricky Leday, Shane Spencer, you know, Kurt, Chad Curtis, and other guys that were in and out. So this 96 team, although it's seen as the beginning of the dynasty, and it is, it's a very, very different team than 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's um, it's some of the same core, but and that's the end of the season. There were some guys on the team at the beginning of the season that, you know, were very sort of, you know, they, I always think of the famous or not famous. I mean, to me, famous, the like MS, the VHS tape that was put out after the Yankees won the World Series in 98 or 96, rather, the uh, narrated by Al Troutwig, you know, go year by year, series by series, week by week kind of thing. And he's talking about some of the questions coming out of spring training. And he mentioned some pitchers. It's like Scott Kamenicki, uh Melito Perez. He does mention Melito Perez. Guys from like, I consider guys from like the 93 team. A baseball season spans only six months in calendar time. But that, that some of the guys you hear about mentioned in April or March even of that team in 96 are long forgotten by the time September, October rolls around. It's called Pinstripe Destiny the video that you're referring to. And I still have my VHS copy and you can also find it on YouTube. So if you want to dial up, I actually in the background as we're watching have the game four of the 96 world series, which I'm sure we'll talk about quite a bit in yes. a little three while. Hours. What'd you say? I said in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be as long as that game was. <laughs> so yeah. And like all of our episodes, we, we don't know how long this is going to go. I think, we're not going to need to worry about filling it out. I think we'll just kind of start talking. And if we go chronological, then we go chronological. Mm -hmm. If we skip around, then we skip around, I guess, to kind of set the table. First of all, um, thank you for checking us out. Uh, email us if you want. Hello, old sports gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook. Hello, old sports podcast. You can like rate review, follow us, and then also check out the sports history network and some of the great shows that we have going on there. So we thank you as always for joining us on the hello world sports podcast. The Yankees had kind of hit their low point in the early nineties. They, you know, the, so, you know, just to take it way back. They had an unprecedented period of winning basically from 1921 all the way to 1964, where they won what 20 world series, I think. And yeah, it would have been 20, 20 World Series. I, I don't know how many pennants off the top of my head. 30, I think 30 pennants, 31 pennants, something around that line, that line. And then they're terrible for about a, a decade. Steinbrenner buys the team. He begins to beef it back up. They 
win two championships. They lose two more World Series, including one in 81. That's kind of the beginning of the end for the dynasty of the late 70s. And then, or I shouldn't say it's the beginning of the end, it's the end. And then they kind of go through the uh, the clown period of hiring and firing Billy Martin, you know, other managers in and out, Lou Pinella, other guys. We've talked about this before. A lot of people don't realize that the Yankees are actually the winningest team of the 1980s, even though after 81, they don't make a single postseason, but they have seasons of 97 wins. I think in 1985, they almost win. They almost win the AL East in 90 in 85. They have a damn good team in 86, although they finished well back because the Red Sox were well over a hundred wins that year. Only five and a half back. Five and a half back, but don't they like they, I think the, they close the gap late. Yeah. I think don't the Yankees win like the last three of the season and the Red Sox lose the last three of the season or something like that when they don't have any the Red Sox don't have anything to play for anymore. Yeah. So we've we've talked, you know, I'm I'm looking up this 82, they went, they fell briefly down to 79 wins, then 91, 87, 97, 90, 89, and 87. And as late as 88, they still won 85 games, which is very weird in 88. They won 85 games. They finished in fifth place, but only three and a half out of first. And that was so, in 89, you said? 88. 88. So who who won the AL East that year? Don't tell me. Was it was it Toronto? It would have been, I believe, Toronto. Yeah. So 88, here's what you had. You had Boston with 73 win, uh, losses. Detroit, 74, a game back. Milwaukee, 75, two back. Toronto, 75, two back. So Boston won it. Oh, so yeah, that's right. That was the Red Sox in 88. You're right. And then the Yankees three and a half back. So you had five teams within three and a half. Um, that was also the year the Orioles went 54 and 107 and started uh, like, oh, and whatever. So that's Billy Martin was the manager that year, right? I believe. Yeah, that's where a lot of those losses came from. Yep. Billy Martin, Billy Martin, 40 and 28, and Lou Pinella, 45 and 48. So Martin got fired midseason. I believe so. Yeah. So anyway, just to get back on what you were saying, the Yankees, there's been a misconception about how bad the Yankees were in the eighties. Cause for the most part, they were a pretty good team. We just took you through 88 and the only year they were below 500 was 82. And they were barely below 500 coming off the of pennant. The reason people remember it so badly, I mean, a, you could say, okay, the Yankees, you know, being good and not making the playoffs wasn't the Yankees way. But the fact is, they were an embarrassment off the field. They were fine to good, depending on the year on the field, but they had become, you know, the volatile Steinbrenner in the late seventies who fired Billy Martin and moved in Bob Lemon and they still won a championship. And then he, you know, made all those other moves and kept bringing Martin back that had given way to a parody of itself. Basically there was all the stuff with Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner and Dave Winfield. Yeah, and there was guys, when they fired Lou Pinella, didn't they try to make it seem like he was fired for stealing office furniture? And I've never heard that, but that wouldn't surprise me. Let me try to find it in the Steinbrenner book here. The play on the field wasn't as bad as people remember, but I think we almost have glossed over just how bad the off the field stuff was and just how much of a joke they had become. 
firing of his Yankee manager, 274 to 275. I might not be able to find this right away, but I'm definitely remembering something like this. Okay, 274. This is, and I'm reading from uh, Bill Madden's Steinbrenner, The Last Lion of Baseball, and I'm on page 274, and it says, In Steinbrenner's Theater of the Bazaar, this was the topper. He was terminating Lou Pinella for allegedly stealing furniture from him, and he wanted me to be the messenger by writing in the paper that Lou was in trouble with Steinbrenner over a personal matter and wasn't long for his job. So that was what they were, and it wasn't true, but that was what the pretext he was trying to uh, set up to fire the guy. Yeah. You have to wonder too, was there, first of all, was there nothing better that he could accuse him of than that? That's like something you accuse somebody out with of when they work at like a real estate agency somewhere in the suburbs. Second of all, do you think there was any shred of truth to it? Or do you think it was just totally fabricated? Like Stamper's like, I know what we'll get him for. I think it was probably mostly the second one. Um, I just, I mean, wouldn't Lou Pinella have as a millionaire have nicer? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things wrong with this. I don't know if Lou Pinella was a millionaire at the time, uh, but uh, but he was wealthy, you know, wealthy enough that he wouldn't need to steal furniture from a baseball clubhouse. It might not be on the second reading of it. It's entirely possible he was excusing him of stealing furniture, like on a personal basis, and maybe not from the. I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was nonsense. So. So, you know, we talk about that and then what people and then there were the few years where they legitimately did bottom out. So, you know, they had gone back and forth from Yogi Berra being fired 16 games into the 85 season to Pinella and then Pinella gets fired and it's Billy Martin and then Dallas Green is there. Bucky Dent is there. And that's where we really start to have the wheels fall off is 89. They fall down to 74 and 87. 1990, they fall to 67 and 95 and finish in last place. And then 91 is not any better at 71 and 91. These are the stump Merrill years. So that 89 to 91 period is where they really truly were awful on the field. And the big thing that happens there is that Steinbrenner in 91 gets suspended for life from baseball for paying a gambler to dig up dirt on his superstar player, Dave Winfield. And they announce the suspension during a Yankee game. I believe it was, I don't know if it was announced, probably wasn't announced on the PA system, but it was, you know, fans with radios and that type of thing. And there was just a, a, a rash or just a, a, a thundering applause in Yankee stadium when Steinbrenner's suspension was announced because I think everybody within the Yankee fandom and also just nationally in baseball had come to embrace this idea, probably not entirely fair, but also not entirely unfair that George Steinbrenner had ruined the Yankees. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting if you watch the Ken Burns thing that came out in 1994 during the strike, they sort of indicate that that like, yeah, he caught lightning in a bottle, but then destroyed the team. I think also some fans were probably glossing over the state of the franchise as he took it over. You know, they had been bad under CBS. They had been, you know, they had fallen to non-competitive levels in the late 60s and early 70s. But if you were looking back at it in 1990, you know, in 1992, say, or 1991, and you're a Yankee fan, you think, okay, this guy took over the franchise 18 years ago. 
they had some initial success. He moved him out of Yankee Stadium. He remodeled Yankee Stadium. I can't, I don't know what the opinions on that at the time were, to be honest, whether people, when they opened it again in 76, thought it was a, a great thing or a terrible thing, or if anybody even cared all that much, to be honest, I really don't know. And then, yeah, they won a couple of titles, but everything since, you know, 81 has been a disaster. The Mets have won a World Series in that meantime. In a lot of ways, the Mets were, for the first time since, I guess, the late 60s, there was an argument that the Mets were sort of the New York team in town. There's an interview with Steinbrenner on Mike and the Mad Dog. And I was from, about to bring that up. Yeah, go ahead. There's there's this interview from 1990, and just as a sort of a little bit of an aside here, Mike and the Mad Dog, who's the great um, New York sports talk uh, show in New York City on WFAN for about 20 years, a lot of their stuff from that time period, from like the late 80s to mid 90s when they first started, a lot of that doesn't survive. But for whatever reason, this one interview with Steinbrenner survives and they have him on. They're asking him all these questions. And three or four times he says to them, you can't expect us to be on the same level as that team in Queens. And hearing that is just so jarring because of what the Yankees became over the next 30 years and what the Mets became over the next 30 years. And the Mets have had some measure of success. They've been to a couple world series, whatever, but to hear Steinbrenner, but you think about it, it was right. I mean, those were the doc Daryl, Gary Carter, Hall of Famers, you know, great Met teams that were so beloved in New York city and such a unique team in history. And in a way, they probably never will be again. The Yankees were the second-class citizen in New York City from a baseball standpoint. And I think, and I, I thought we might get to this later, and we'll probably touch on it later, but I think another thing that has to be factored in, and you know, we could, I'm sure, go round and round about whether the perception was as accurate as it should have been or whatever, but the Yankees at the time, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, uh, played in the South Bronx at a time when New York City was at its least safe as it had been probably since the Revolutionary War when they were <laughs> fighting a war. Um, New York City was in a was in a very violent period for it. They, even though the Mets obviously played in New York City as well, they played in Queens. They played in a stadium a lot of people drove to that was almost on Long Island in terms of the border. The Yankees were still very much an urban team. Steinbrenner was always threatening to, at that point, to move them out of the city. And he didn't fully give that up for a little while until they really started to draw. He was threatening to move them out. They were definitely not seen as a team, especially when they're bad in 1990 or whatever, that a lot of people are going to go to. I mean, we used to remember hearing people make jokes about going to Yankee games when we were kids. Like, And I'm talking you know, 92, 93, about how dangerous the area was and probably was not fully accurate, but certainly had some truth to it. I saw a writer, Peter Goldenbach, wrote one time that everybody was complaining because the neighborhood was bad, but in fact, it was the Yankees that were bad. <laughs> There's probably elements of both. And it's funny, uh, and this is where I said we're going to jump around here. I watched the home opener from 96 uh, a couple days ago on the DVR a Yankees against Cleveland. Was it Cleveland? They beat in that game in the snow. Yeah. No. Who yeah. was it that they beat in that game in the snow in 96? Yeah. 
Oh, no, because they started. It might have been Cleveland or Kansas City or something. They no, it was it was definitely Kansas City because they were talking about the young Kansas City team with Johnny Damon and everything. That was exactly what it was. Cleveland was, I think, their their opening game in the season, but Kansas City was the home opener. If I yeah 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 if I have that correct. So and they had during the game they uh, whoever was doing it was the even though it was a video. Yes, network does this thing where even though they have the video, a lot of times they'll have the radio broadcasters. And they had Giuliani on, they had the mayor on, and he was talking about the plans that were still active in April of 1996 to try and build a new Yankee ballpark that I think the Jets were going to be a part of also on the west side of Manhattan. And so I don't know when that died, probably not long after, but even into this 96 season, there's a real push by powerful people in New York city to get the Yankees out of the Bronx. And I think the powerful push by people in New York city wasn't to get the Yankees out of the Bronx. It was to keep the Yankees in New York city. Well, that's the other thing too. Steinbrenner had been flirting with Jersey for 10 years. Yeah. So just to set the stage on this, you know, they were all through the eighties starting in 82. Well, you know, they were first, as soon as the new stadium opened in 76 and they were good, they were first in attendance. 82 through 83, they're third, then they're middle of the pack. Until 91, they bottom out. They're 11th of 14 in attendance. This is in the American League. In 91 and 92, 93, they're fifth. And then by 94, 95, and 96, they're still middle of the pack. They're seventh in attendance. Even through 97, they're sixth. And then, as we can talk about later, they make a jump to never being any lower than first, second, or third for the rest of the time they're in the stadium. It all kind of comes together. It's a bad team playing in what's seen as a very dangerous area in front of mostly empty crowds. The owner is a joke. They're the second team in New York for the most part, you know, at least if not in terms of raw fans, definitely in terms of attendance and in terms of uh, the public imagination. By 1990, by the early 90s. We're not talking about 96 now. We're talking about 91, 92, something in there. Yeah, and you figure also the Giants have just been good for most of the 80s, won Super Bowls, the Knicks are good. So there's other teams competing for supremacy beyond just the Mets in the mind of the New York sports fan. So I guess we move forward now to where it starts to turn around, which is... I mean, I guess you could say 92, although it didn't show on the field in 92. But that's when Buck Showalter comes in as the manager. Showalter, um, who's a lifelong Yankee, never makes the major leagues, but he'd been a player in the Yankees minor league system and then a coach in the Yankees minor league system. This is a guy who was a Yankee lifer. He'd been a coach under Billy Martin at one point in the 80s and Loved being a Yankee so far so much that I even I've seen a story where he had a separate bank account through his whole tenure with the Yankees he had a separate bank account that the only thing that was in that bank account was his first paycheck as a Yankee. And that that was like mm-hmm. his way of commemorating his love for being a Yankee. So he'd been a you know, he's young. How old is, is Showalter when he first gets hired? He's probably only like mid 30s. I want to say he's born in 19. 19- 56 so he's 37 36 37 when he first gets hired mm-hmm. as yankee manager 
Yeah, and that's you, he's so young, and the way you can tell he was so young is that he's it's twenty twenty two and he's still managing. He's managing Back managing Mets. in New York. Yeah, but he, you know, since then he's been with four or five different teams, but he's been he's not super old by any means. It's not like when Sparky Anderson or Jim Leland or Jack McKeon was managing. He's only sixty five at this point. So. And the team he takes over, it's got some of the guys who would make up sort of the nucleus of the team for the next couple of years. But it's also got a lot of the kind of the, the typical bad attitude guys, Mel Hall and Roberto mm-hmm. Kelly, Roberto Kelly, who's famously, or I'm sorry, Mel Hall, I should say, who's famously a, a bully to a bunch of guys, including, um, including Bernie Williams. He calls him zero. So just kind of bad attitude type guys, guys who aren't all that committed to winning. Showalter makes it. Steinbrenner wasn't on that team because he would have said some of these guys have a bad attitude, Skip. (laughs) That's a, uh, you mean too bad Strawberry wasn't on that team. I said Strawberry, didn't I? I thought you know you said Steinbrenner. Oh, well, that's a problem. Go ahead. (laughs) So then in 93, they do some things that sort of kind of move them into the next level of competitiveness. They trade Roberto Kelly away for Paul O'Neill, which in addition to bringing in O'Neill, who would be a centerpiece of the team for the next several years, that also frees up a spot in center field for Bernie Williams they signed Jimmy Key, who is the first sort of big name free agent in his prime free agent that the Yankees have signed. He had just come off winning a World Series in 92 with the Blue Jays. He's old. He's 32 in 1993, but he ends up finishing uh, fourth in the Cy Young vote for the Yankees in 93, second in 94. Guys like Mike Stanley and Randy Velarde are starting to play a bigger role on the team. And 93, they don't come close. I think they compete for a while, but they finish with 88 wins, second in the AL East to the Blue Jays. But this attitude is starting to develop. And I think one thing that is important to note about the 93 team is, so end of July, they're 15 over 500. They're actually either tied with the Blue Jays or they're a game or two back. They've been rotating back and forth and they decide not. And even as late as August 31st, if you want to look at the, you know, the other trade deadline, there's still only a game and a half back and they make the conscious decision not to try to make some short term moves and trade a Bernie Williams or something along those lines to try and, you know, make the playoffs that year and, do something that year because they, for the first time in a long time, have an eye on the future as opposed to trying to make a, a get-rich-quick scheme on that the 93 season. And that's the kind of trade that if Steinbrenner had still been around, that's exactly the kind of trade he would have made yes. late in the season to try and grab some veteran, some overpaid veteran at a at an inflated price. And I think we should, I don't know if we've mentioned the name yet, but at this point, the guy who's running the show is Gene Michael. Yeah. He's the GM. He's the one who, you know, gets a lot of credit, deservedly so, for 
being the guy who with Steinbrenner out on, you know, suspended really turns the season or turns the franchise around. And he does it by being the anti Steinbrenner in pretty much every way. They make some smart trades, not splashy ones, and they go after some free agents, but he's also a steady hand. He lets guys like Bernie grow into the roles that he wants them to have. He trades for a guy like Paul O'Neill, who's a, you know, becomes sort of the backbone of the personality of the team. And he's also drafting these other guys, Jeter, mm. Pettit, Posada, that whole Mariano Rivera. So he's building that team for the, you know, the, the team that'll go well into the 21st century at the same time as he's letting these guys develop at the major league level. Gene Michael is another one of these guys who just kind of never really left the Yankees, despite being repeatedly fired by George Steinbrenner. I don't know how many guys have ever been fired as manager of the same team two years in a row. <laughs> he was in 81. He was the manager of the Yankees. And they had 81 was the year with the crazy strike with the half years, they you know, with the, the season, basically the yeah. split season. Yeah. He finished first in the American League East in 81 in the first half of the season. Then they come back after the strike and they're sort of they're struggling. They're like 500. So Steinbrenner fires him, brings back Bob Lemon. The team ends up going to the World Series, loses with Lemon as the manager. But the main reason they were in there was because of Michael's first half year. And then they fought. Then he comes back in. How does this even work? I want to see. He gets fired again in 82. Did he start the season as manager? Or did he? The Yankees had three managers this year. They had Clyde King, Gene Michael, and Bob Lemon. I know we're getting a little bit far afield here. Either yes, way, we I, are. I'd have to look here and see whether he was. I don't know whether he started as the manager again in 82 and was fired. They brought Lemon back another time or whether Lemon started. They fired him and they brought Michael in. And I don't know how Clyde King factors in here. It was a crazy. I got to learn more about this, this 82 Yankee team because it's just it's nutty. Maybe when we do our 82 episode later in the year, we'll we'll talk about that. But anyway, despite being repeatedly fired by George Steinbrenner, he sticks around as general manager and builds this team. They're decent in 93. We don't, I don't know how much we need to rehash 94 because we just talked about it. We should probably not. <laughs> um, bottom line is that they are well ahead in first place in the AL East in 94. He believes that they were on their way to a World Series appearance. Yeah, and we talked about how that's, I mean, they certainly were on their way to having the best record in the American League. And then they come back in 95 after the strike and they're not as good as everybody thinks they're going to be. They really struggle. And I just want to pull up the sort of game by game of 1995 because they are way under 500 well into the season in 95. As late as August 24th, they are 53 and 55 they're 14 and a half behind the Red Sox. But at this point, they're only four and a half out of the wild card, which is now in it's basically its first year because the 94 season was uh, was aborted. Mm -hmm. So 
Had this been a year or two years prior, they would have been dead and buried. But since they can get this wild card spot, they're still alive. But they are still, you know, a week away from September and they're under 500. So they go on this sort of epic run in September. At one point, they win six in a row and then they lose and then they win five more in a row. They clinch the wild card on the very last day. It's a Sunday. I still remember this day. They're in Toronto and they beat Toronto on a home run led by a home run by Pat Kelly, who's this weak hitting second baseman. And the big sort of story is Don Mattingly's finally going to the postseason. And there's this famous image of him on the turf of the Sky Dome pounding the turf with his hand or his fist in ecstasy at having won. They go to the playoffs. They they have a nice win in game one. Mattingly gets a huge ovation before the during the introductions to the first game. Well, and we should point that out too, because people may not, unless you're intimately familiar with these couple of years, you wouldn't know what's going on here. So you know, this is all kind of new and for some different TV reasons and annoying things like that. Even though the Yankees are the wild card, they open up at home for games one and two, but that's it. Google the, the series, baseball network. Yes. Then the series is shifting to Seattle for the final three games. The Yankees win game one behind a great pitching performance from Cone. Wade Boggs leads off the game with a home run in the bottom of the first inning. They, which I should also mention, that was the other thing they did in 93 was bring in Boggs, which was another sort of veteran future Hall of Fame leadership type of guy. They win game one. They win an epic game two, which even with everything that came after is still considered one of the great nights in Yankee history. There's a moment where Ruben Sierra hits a home run and then Mattingly comes up and Mattingly hits a home run and Sierra and Mattingly go back to back and the building. I still don't know if it's ever been that loud, that old Yankee stadium. I don't know. Even during the dynasty, during the championships, that moment is just such a cathartic moment when Mattingly hits that home run. Look it up if you're a Yankee fan. It's one of the greatest sort of it, it's still every time I watch it, it still gives me goosebumps. So, so some of the other ones I would suggest Chambliss in 76, Boone. Yeah. Three. Yeah. And and probably, I mean, the Girardi triple that we'll talk about later was another one, too. But just for sort of pure, you can tell that, like, you know, a decade and a half of built up fandom just erupted. In that moment, they win game two on a 15th inning home run by Jim Lehrer. It's a name you'll hear again. And then they go back to Seattle. They blow leads in every single game of that series of that. um, uh, Every single game in Seattle, I think they blow a lead, if I'm not mistaken. Let me look up here. Game three, they lose seven to four. They are leading. That game, okay, they're only leading that game one to nothing. And that's a great performance by Randy Johnson. Game four, this is the one I remember. This was on a Saturday. This is the one they really should have won. They're up five nothing going in to the bottom of the fourth inning. I'm sorry, the bottom of the third inning. 
still early, but they're up five, nothing. And then their pitching just falls apart. And then in game five, one of the great postseason games of the modern era, they're up two to one, four to two, and then five to four. They blow all three of those leads, lose that game in the bottom of the 11th on a hit down the line by Edgar Martinez. Griffey scores from first. And what just a couple days ago had seemed like a Yankee team that was destined for this potentially this magical run to the World Series is out. Steinbrenner's infuriated at how they lost it. And all of a sudden, what a week earlier had been this great feel-good story in in New York with the Yankees ends up being one of the most chaotic off-seasons in Yankee history as they basically just take a torch to almost the whole structure of the thing. Yep, and I think we should just real quick touch on this, the end of this whole series. The Marlins, or excuse me, the Mariners, this is still the team that I think any Mariners fan feels the most fondly about, including the 01 team that won 116 games. The Mariners are the only franchise that's never been to a World Series. This probably saved baseball in Seattle this series. They were a franchise that as early as that offseason, that spring training had been talking about trading Randy Johnson and potentially moving to Tampa Bay, which did not have a franchise at the time. They go on a run themselves. Lou Pinella, former Yankee manager in Seattle. During this series on multiple occasions, Steinbrenner has heard to remark to the people in his booth that Pinella is out managing. Buck Showalter, he's, he's running circles around him, whatever you'd want to say. So the Marlins go on this insane run that culminates with them playing in a one-game playoff against the California Angels, beating them becoming the American League West champions, playing the Yankees. They win this series. They ultimately lose in the next round to Cleveland, but this team basically saves baseball in Seattle. And then sort of the last thing, and I'm, the book I'm mostly quoting here is The Birth of a Dynasty by Joel Sherman, long-time, long-time reporter uh, for the you know New York Post and covered the Yankees for a long time. And his whole chapter here, basically, he's talking about the – Game five, where Showalter just continues to let David Cohn pitch going up into, I believe, the 130s of pitches before ultimately leaving the game after the season is tied. Or, excuse me, 147 pitches as he walks in the tying run, which is his last pitch of the season. Showalter comes to get him. And the refrain, and this is not a fair criticism, but I don't think it's even a criticism. It's just a rhetorical question. Throughout the chapter of this first chapter of this book, every couple of sentences uh, describing this inning, Joel Sherman just writes, what if Buck Showalter had known? And the question is, what if he had known was that, what if he had known that, that he had the greatest relief pitcher in the history of baseball sitting in his bullpen? So I want to read this and we haven't referenced every every single one of these things, but I think it's worth and this is the last couple of paragraphs from that book. It says a victory over the Mariners would have advanced the Yankees to play the Indians who they'd mastered over the past two years. It also would have given Showalter a near ironclad case to be retained. The same was probably true for Gene Michael, general manager. If they'd been kept in place, a group of players thought of as Showalter guys, Mike Stanley, Randy Velarde, Jack McDowell, Dion James, and possibly even Don Mattingly also might have been kept. 
Before game five, Showalter had tried to inspire his club in a meeting by noting just how different the club would likely look in 1996 and that this was a chance to do something special together for the last time. But the Yankees did not win game five. They lost their poise on the road and Steinbrenner was heard in the clubhouse telling his executives that this meant massive change was needed. And then it goes through a number of what ifs, including the fact that the Yankees blew a game late in the season to Seattle, that if Seattle had lost in late August, they might have traded Randy Johnson or somehow other, you know, done something else. Um, maybe they wouldn't have gone on this run in earlier in 95. What if the Mariners had traded Randy Johnson? Then obviously the biggest one is what if they had known what they had in Mariano Rivera? Arnie likes to us to keep it clean. Um, Showalter's response to that question is not a um, not a clean one when asked why he didn't put Rivera in. He says uh, bull effing s, but they lose. Steinbrenner's mad, and it kind of it kind of kind of cascades from there. I guess. I mean, I don't know what happens first. I guess the first thing probably is that I'm sorry. I was going to say, we can get into all the off-season moves. We really should start with the manager. Whether it was chronologically accurate or not, we should start with the manager. Yeah, I think the first thing, and this can be quick, is I think that Michael gets tired first. I think Gene Michael's tired of getting beaten up by Steinbrenner, so he leaves. And then they're looking for a GM. But I think before they even have a GM, Showalter goes too, but... I don't know if you want to tell the story, but Steinbrenner, he doesn't fire him. He sort of kind of tries to force him out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let me just uh, pull up the exact wording on what happens here. I did want to point out from this book that right before you started reading it, it talks about how basically Steinbrenner had gone insane in the next week. It said, uh, let me see if I can find it, but it says essentially like had anybody else been like any other owner might have uh, been calm and consoled his team on like getting there. Instead, he uh, railed at a bunch of people, the Matt, the, the Mariners president for not subtracting payroll. Like he promised he was going to, he railed about Gene Budig. Oh, here we go. Any other owner might've observed this scene and honored his team's fortitude by simply reaching for simply reaching this moment while acknowledging the greatness of the series that just ended. But George Scheimer has spent the last week out of control. He'd been critical of his own fans for not showing up during this season. He'd done nothing to stem the threats that he would move the team to New Jersey. If a new stadium was not built for him, preferably on the west side of Manhattan, he lambasted the umpires all but crying conspiracy against his team. He disparaged former University of Kansas and current AL president Gene Budig as an educator who might not have the faculties for the job. He blasted Mariner president John, et cetera, et cetera. So, Here's what we got. So it talks about how Showalter had received a three-year, one million extension after his rookie season in 92. When the Yankees finished tied for fourth, Steinbrenner proposed a two-year contract with the Yankees after having just gone to the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. More important, Steinbrenner told Showalter that coaches Brian Butterfield, Glenn Sherlock, and Rick Down could not return. It fit George's time-honored tradition that if you don't like a manager or chief executive, rather than go directly after him, he would cut the leg legs out by firing the secretary or coaches. Showalter believed that fewer years on his contract and the removal of his coaches weakened his position in the organization. Uh, and there's a couple of things worth noting there. First of all, Showalter is a very loyal guy. He's very loyal to his coaches. 
And that is evidenced by the fact that 27 years later, the bench coach that he didn't want Steinbrenner to get rid of, Glenn Sherlock, is his bench coach with the Mets. So mm-hmm. a lifetime later for Showalter, this guy is still his bench coach. The other okay. thing is it's not just loyalty and it's not just control. One of the things that had happened in early 95 was that the pitching coach, Billy Connors, had been fired kind of by Steinbrenner, kind of by Showalter. But then Connors went down to Tampa to the Yankee offices down there and then spent the next three months bad-mouthing Showalter. So Showalter is very concerned that there are going to be spies on his own coaching staff constantly pipelining things down to Steinbrenner and this whole Tampa crew that he has. And I think people need to, to realize that, that, um, that up until George Steinbrenner's mental health really started to deteriorate, pretty much the whole time I was remembering the Yankees, which started right around the 95 season, you know, in earnest, there was like this Tampa faction of Steinbrenner and Steinbrenner's people, and they would occasionally undermine the New York faction of Brian Cashman and Joe Torrey and whoever else was involved at the moment. And the Yankees were a very um, palace intrigue organization, even when they were good, less so when they were good, because there was less to be upset about. But um, so here's the exact details. It says, what is certain is that during a 10 minute conversation, Showalter in Pensacola rejected the two year $1.05 million offer from Steinbrenner. What has remained in dispute, as Brian Cashman remembers, is whether Buck left or was fired. So Showalter was under the belief that he had turned down the offer and was awaiting further negotiations. Steinbrenner indicated during those conversations that the only thing he was firm on was that Rick Down could not come back. So he thought that they had, you know, Showalter thought that was sort of the opening stages of negotiation Showalter or excuse me, Steinbrenner announces right before game five of the world series, which for anybody who knows anything, all of the owners and teams in baseball basically agree that during the world series, you don't make major announcements like this an hour before the uh, world series game five between Cleveland and Atlanta Steinbrenner issues a missive that Buck Showalter will not return to the Yankees and Showalter has insisted that it was not until reporters begin calling him that he realized that he was out. And I think Showalter cites the fact that he, he kept cat. He got a paycheck. I guess I don't know how the paycheck worked, but he said that he didn't quit because he kept getting paid through the end of his contract. So they, people claim that, well, he said as early as a week or so before that he had quit, but Showalter says, no, that's not accurate. I've been, you know, I've been cashing paychecks, you know, all the way through October 31st. So it's it's a very strange situation. And there's people in the Yankee organization that are not the biggest fan of Showalter. The other thing is that he did have a way of sort of burning out his team, not not from the point of view of the way a football coach would burn out their team, but his sort of inability to take wins and losses in stride, which you really have to do in Major League Baseball. It's not like the NFL I think that a lot of people felt that maybe a calmer approach was needed. Well, and and and, and this is the thing, and I, I don't feel like we're jumping ahead and spoiling the end of the movie for anybody who's listening to this. As chaotic as this is, and as um, 
absurd as it is to look and say a guy who had did these things for a few years and you give him this contract offer and you don't bring him back and you replace him. In the end, they were right. In the end, George Steinbrenner was right. He ended up with the most un-George Steinbrenner candidates, who we're going to start to talk about in a minute, who then turned out to be in the Pantheon. He's in the Huggins-McCarthy Stangle Pantheon of the Yankees. They were right. They got their guy. So they hire Bob Watson as the GM. They had actually interviewed Joe Torre for the general manager spot, and he decided that he wasn't interested. But he said something along the lines of, well, if there's any other way that I can help. And so they, they introduced Joe Torre as the manager on November 2nd. They asked Bob Watson who he had considered else as the managerial candidates he he says he listed he said he spoke to four other candidates but he lists six including sparky anderson chris chambliss a couple other guys tory and buck showalter (laughs) even after tory is hired there's still this sort of groundswell that showalter should be the manager. And I think it's at the daily news, maybe that runs a poll where they, and this is pre really kind of pre-internet. So this is all sort of write in type of stuff. They do a poll and let me see here. I think I can, um, as you're looking, I'm just going to fill in. I think it's important at this time to sort of reflect on the perception of Joe. And it's tough if you, you know, to knowing the last 30 years to think about what the perception of Joe Torrey was at the time. He was clueless Joe. Well, and the best I can come up with is, so he'd been the manager of some of, he'd obviously been a very, very good player. Um, He'd been, you know, a borderline great player at times, but he wasn't such a legendary player that, you know, people spoke in hushed tones about him. He'd managed the Mets, uh, sort of in their in-between period from 77 to 81 to losing records every year. He went to Atlanta for a few years in the early 80s and, again, had to actually had some good Atlanta teams above 500, but, you know, again, no championship or anything like that. I think he made the playoffs once in Atlanta. That would make sense. It, well, they won 89 and 88 games, so I would think one of those years might have been a playoff season, maybe 82 And then he took over the Cardinals in 90 and he was with the Cardinals 90 through 95. And again, a couple of win years with wins in the low eighties, but nothing, nothing remarkable, you know, second place finishes, third place finishes. And from a persona standpoint, what became his trademark with the Yankees was seen as a detriment, which was, The only thing I can think of is almost how people perceived like Jim Caldwell, the culture of the Colts for all those years. And then the lions where he was very stoic and almost showed no emotion. And to a lot of people that indicated he didn't care or he was, uh, you know, uh, asleep literally or figuratively at the switch and fans and media people love guys who are going to go in and throw water coolers. And I'm not going to say sometimes a team doesn't need that, but that's what people like. And if you're losing and that's your demeanor, people are very, very quick to jump up on it. 
and I should take and you should take it even a step further. Fans like it. Media loves it. And Steinbrenner really loves it. Steinbrenner is a football guy. He'd been an assistant football coach for Woody Hayes at Ohio State. So and that was actually one of the things that Steinbrenner liked about Showalter was the intensity. But and he looks at he sees this new guy, Tory, and he doesn't know what to make of him. We have to talk about what happens right after they fire Tory or right after they hire Tory. So I was this is what I was looking up. The the New York Daily News ran a poll right around this time, right after it was clear that uh, Showalter. I know this is actually. This is after Tory has been hired, apparent, according to this, what I'm reading here from this same book, New York Post ran a fax poll asking readers who they think the next manager of the Yankees should be. Show Walter wins as a write-in candidate at 45%. So almost half of the people write in Show Walter. And so, and this is from another book. This was a book that was written right after the the um they won in 96. It was by uh, John Harper and Bob Clappish, who were two two uh newspaper writers who covered the team for the, the local papers. And it says, when the hiring of Tory was panned by the press as grasping for a retread manager with a losing record, Steinbrenner was more and more troubled by the reaction. So he showed up unannounced at Showalter's house in Pensacola, Florida, stunned Showalter by offering him a chance to come back, preferably in the form of an agreement to replace Tory in a year or two. And he was, but if he said, if, Showalter would only come back if they gave him the job immediately. Steinbrenner was willing, because keep in mind, Joe Torre has a contract now. You can't just tell him to go away. He's willing to assign Torre to some sort of a nebulous position in the organization, make Showalter the manager again. Showalter says no, first of all, because he doesn't want to embarrass Joe Torre. Second of all, because he is already kind of in talks with the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Diamondbacks, in addition to wanting to make him the man the first ever manager of the team the team doesn't begin playing for two more years until 1998, so three more years, I guess you could even say they want to give him a role in designing almost everything. They want to give him his role in choosing some of the players. They want to give him a role in designing the field, designing the uniforms. Should we talk about that? Cause you mentioned it. Let's talk about that in a second. I just want to say that for a control freak like Showalter, this is like the best offer he can get. You're talking about this um this this uh strip of dirt. Yeah. So uh, the designing the field thing comes into play interestingly because the Diamondbacks, who are obviously going to play in a retractable roof stadium because they play in Arizona in the summer, one of the touches that Buck Showalter recommends for the stadium is that they bring back an old school baseball thing, which is a strip between the home plate and the pitcher's mound. The, uh, you know, the a dirt uh, strip right there, which is, was a staple of baseball fields for a long, long time and kind of fell out of favor. And now there's a few stadiums that have it, but the Diamondbacks were credited with bringing it back. And in 01, in the World Series, with Mariana Rivera on the mound against the Diamondbacks in Game 7, there was a bunt that he fielded that some people say he misplayed and mishandled because he wasn't used to fielding a bunt on the dirt like that. 
and that possibly that contributed to the Yankees losing the World Series in 2001. And that was the error. That was when he threw it over the second baseman's head, right? In that I think one? so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of the end of the Yankee dynasty that we're talking about the beginning of now. Yeah. So, so anyway, they got Tory, they got Watson, but then there are also all of these crazy player moves. Mattingly retires. Mattingly gives kind of this weird kind of vaguely worded statement where he doesn't officially say he's retiring, but he sort of just encourages the team to go on without him. They, so they lose Mattingly. The other big loss is Mike Stanley. And that's a baseball decision. Stanley, who was a beloved player, was the he's been an all star catcher the year before, but he's he's well into his 30s and the Yankees really feel like they need a defensive catcher as their number one catcher. So they get rid of Stanley. They bring in Joe Girardi, who had been with the Colorado Rockies and was kind of everything Stanley wasn't. Stanley was not a great defensive catcher. Girardi was a very good defensive catcher. Stanley was a power hitter. Girardi, I think, averaged you know one or two home runs a year. Stanley couldn't run. Girardi ran pretty well for a catcher. He could even occasionally steal a base. So just sort of the mirror opposite. He's younger. Uh, Stanley, uh, Girardi is, I guess Girardi's not that much younger, to, to be fair. Girardi's 31, but I think Mike Stanley's well into his 30s. So just a different type of player. And so they're losing guys. Um, Jack McDowell had only been on the team for one year leaves Randy Velarde, who'd been one of these guys who was like a hero of Yankee fans as sort of this utility gritty type player leaves. They're starting to lose guys. And Stanley was 33. So he's two years older than Girardi in 96. They're kind of remaking the team a little bit. They re-signed David Cohn, which is a big deal. Cohn had kind of been like a hired gun. He had started off with Kansas City, then got traded to the Mets. And he wasn't on the 86 Mets, but he was on the the good Met teams of the late 80s. Then he'd been in Toronto in 93, I want to say. He was on the second Blue Jay World Series team. Then got traded to the Royals. And then actually, as a free agent in 95, had gone back to Toronto again. And then they traded him to the Yankees. But when David Cohn got traded, people, I think, don't realize this because David Cohn ended up spending so much time with the Yankees. He was very much seen as like a one-year thing. A lot of people expected him to leave after the 95 season. He has really heavy flirtations with Baltimore. He, I think, at least talks about going back to the Mets. Well, I got to tell that story in a second here. But so real quick on Cone starts in 86 with Kansas City is with the Mets. 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. They trade him to Toronto in 92. He's on the team that wins a champion. Then he goes to Kansas City in 93 and 94. Then he goes back to Toronto they trade him to the Yankees. He finishes the 95 season with the Yankees. And his 96 is going on, or the offseason between 95 and 96 is going on. He's sitting in a hotel room in New York City, and the big the, uh, the big contenders are the Yankees to re-sign him and the Orioles. So it said he was, there was all sorts of miscommunications, and Steinbrenner's blaming Bob Watson. 
Cohen says, I was very close to being an Oriole within a few hours. The Yankees backpedaled the deferred money. The Orioles were talking about was pretty ludicrous over three years. Little discrepancy held up talks, enabled Steinbrenner to come back and get me. Deal with the Orioles could have been done before the call if the Orioles had not haggled over deferred money. Now, here's the twist that's hilarious. So the Yankees and Orioles are going back on big money deal and certain numbers of years. And this is from the Joel Sherman book. It says, one more twist occurred early on the morning of December 21st. Cohen's pal, Mets closer John Franco, was aware of the negotiating intrigue and recommended to management that the Mets try to nab his friend. Mets GM Joe McElvain made an 8 a.m. stop at Cohen's East 56th Street apartment to see if he could reunite the Mets with the reunite the righty with the Mets to serve as an ace and a guru to the Generation K starters. He offered two years. And <laughs> Cohen, asked, Cohen asked, haven't you guys been reading the papers? <laughs> Alluding to the well-documented three-year tenders already made by Baltimore and the Yankees. McIlvain, after consulting with the uh, Mets owner, Fred Wilpon, returned to the apartment to bid 14.7 over three years. Besides being significantly lower than the offers of the Yankees and Orioles, the Mets would not provide Cohn with a no-trade clause, a necessity for him to trade his, uh, shed his image as a hired gun. More irritating to the pitcher, McIlvain spent a good deal of time inquiring if Cohn was a media leak during his six years playing with the Mets. <laughs> so the, the, the Mets just decided to get involved with a lowball offer and then to inquire about things from 1988. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is sort of the height of the, the Mets. <laughs> yeah, the, the Mets are a joke and they turn it around sort of starting this year when they bring in uh, former hello old sports guest, Bobby Valentine. And that's when they kind of start to turn it around. But yeah, but at the beginning of 96, they're still a joke. Yankees. They really don't make a lot of big moves in the 96 off season other than one trade, which I'll talk about in a minute, but they bring in Girardi. Tim Raines comes in to be sort of like a backup um, kind of utility outfielder type, but they're bringing back Bernie. They're bringing back O'Neill. They're bringing back Gerald Williams, Ruben Sierra, who'd been the DH, is coming back. They traded him middle of the year before for Danny Tartable. They still got Boggs at third. Jeter, Derek Jeter, I think probably now is a good time to talk about him. Derek Jeter had been with the team sort of periodically in 95. He had come up for a while in May to play shortstop when there were some injuries. He'd spent most of the year in the minors. He was not on the playoff roster, although you see him when you watch that 95 ALDS, you see him on the bench because Showalter had wanted Jeter to be on the bench, even though he wasn't active, to be the, um, to kind of experience what the playoffs were like. Interestingly enough, all of the other guys from that core four are on the playoff roster in 95 had it as a starting pitcher Rivera as a reliever. And believe it or not, even though he doesn't really factor in, in 96 Jorge Posada is actually on the postseason roster in 95 as like a third catcher. And he actually pinch runs. I think it's the only time he gets, he pinch runs in game two of that 95 ALDS. So very strange. And then he Posada doesn't really become a factor again until 97, but this is the first year for Jeter. People are wondering, maybe is it a year too soon, but the plan is to move 
Tony Fernandez, who'd been the shortstop. The plan is to move him to second base. Then they're going to have Mariano Duncan as sort of the utility infielder. Like I said, they still have Boggs. They've got Girardi. They're bringing back Jimmy Key, who had been their ace in 93 and 94, but in 95 had gotten hurt early in the season. Doesn't factor into the 95 playoffs at all. And then the two other signings I feel like we should talk about is, first of all, Doc Gooden. Obviously, and it's been done to death, and I would assume anybody who is listening to this podcast knows the history. And, and certainly when we talked about the 86 Mets, we talked a lot about Doc Gooden in the 85, you know, his great year in 85. And then in 86, he was obviously a uh, key part. He wasn't as good as he was in 85, but he was part of a championship team. And I kind of remember earliest I remember is him on like the 93 Mets, that horrible 93 Mets team where he was still like a, uh, like a good, he was the biggest player on those teams. And I remember people joking that he was the best hitter on the team. Cause he like was a decent enough hitter for a pitcher. Yeah. During the, you know, he'd been suspended a few times, including in the 94, he was bad in 94, three and four with a 6.31 ERA in the strike shortened season tested positive for cocaine was suspended 60 gate 60 days during that suspension he tested positive again and was suspended for the entire 95 season the day after his second suspension his wife found him with a loaded gun at his head threatening to commit suicide there was a uh this is kind of a passage of time New York thing that would be interesting but kind of sad in July of 95 uh, the famous long-standing Dwight Gooden mural in Times Square is replaced and do you know what it's replaced with the mural of it's another New York athlete at the time 95 <sighs> Ewing would be too easy right church wrong to you Messier? Oakley. Oakley. (laughs) (laughs) So he's suspended. You know, he's total fall from grace. He's, you know, and especially again, we're talking about the time. He's a drug addict. He's irredeemable. He ruined his career. He's not a role model. He's damaged goods. He's beyond damaged goods. He's irreparably damaged goods. And he's also a power pitcher who's well into his 30s. Exactly. And his best year was 11 years ago at this point. So that's the one. And then the other big one is to replace Mattingly is this trade for Tino Martinez, who had been one of the guys who had really beaten up on the Yankees in 95. Did they trade for him or did they sign him? No, it was a trade and it was a big trade. Oh, okay. And it was the Yankees trade. And I want to get the exact guys here. So the Yankees trade Sterling Hitchcock and First, they traded Russ Davis, who had been Boggs's backup at third base for the last couple of years. And then they trade Sterling Hitchcock and the Mariners were either going to ask for Pettit or Hitchcock. And it's sort of in the within the negotiations, the Yankees are able to part only with Hitchcock and not with Pettit. But the two were seen as not equal, but sort of the same type of guy, young promising left-handers. So that's sort of another one of these moves where it was like, geez, if it had gone the other way, things would have been so different. 
So it's those two guys. And the Yankees bring back three guys. They bring back Jim Messier, who's only really on the team for one year as a reliever. They bring back Martinez. And then the other guy that they bring back, and this is important too, as far as the rest of this Yankee dynasty is that they bring in Jeff Nelson, who is the mainstay other than Rivera is really the other mainstay of the Yankee bullpen, 96, 97, 98, 99. You have sort of in this 95 ALDS, you have all these guys who end up playing roles in different places. Martinez, Nelson, Luis Soho, who the Yankees bring in later. So that is the team. But I think they it's also, they also brought in Kenny Rogers, too. And that was in a lot of ways considered sort of their big market. Big, free. Yeah, absolutely. Rogers, who had been sought after, who had been he'd been an all star. I remember he'd thrown a perfect game a couple years ago. He was a marquee signing in that 96 offseason. Kenny Rogers. Yeah, he was considered one of the higher profile signings. It just didn't obviously work out, as we'll talk about a lot in the course of the 96 season. But um, so, I, you know, that kind of rounds out sort of the, the top line moves. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that going into 96, they still are very much similar. I mean, Mattingly's gone. Stanley's gone. They've obviously made the trade for Tino. Most of the guys from 95, though, are back. They're bringing back Cam and Nicky. He starts a couple games in early 96 and then gets injured and kind of fades away. Gerald Williams is still an important part of the Yankee outfield. He is the regular everyday left fielder with Bernie and O'Neill in the outfield. He plays some center even when Bernie's, you know, hurt or needs a day off early on in the season. Velarde's gone, but they still have Pat Kelly. Most of the guys from the bullpen from the year before are still there at the beginning. Bob Wickman, Steve Howe is still there for the first couple of months. In fact, Howe becomes sort of an unofficial counselor to Gooden kind of, you know, counseling him don't make Steve Howe who's these legend you know legendarily was um suspended or banned from baseball seven times for drug use and ends up getting cut from the team uh, during the season and later dies tragically in a traffic accident with methamphetamine in his system and all these types of things he was still on the team and kind of you know a, a counselor to Gooden over during those first couple of years so Everybody thinks the 96 team is very different than 95, but at the beginning of the year, at least, there's a lot more of those guys from 95 that are still around. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point is that it's, you know, it the team that starts the 90s, and I guess this is true of any team, but like the team that starts the 96 season, by the time we get to the World Series, there are guys who... I mean, how many people, how many Yankee fans in May of 1996 knew who Graham Lloyd was? And by October of 1996, when Jim Layritz is stepping into the batter's box against the Braves, how many of those people are remembering that Steve Howe was on that team that year? You know what I mean? It's- no, absolutely. So I, I don't know. I don't know that we necessarily need to go through sort of week by week or month by month, but 
maybe we could just kind of talk about some of sort of some of the biggest storylines of that regular season. I'm going to pull up the the game by game. And again, we're not going to go game by game, but just so I can, uh, you know, a couple of things that pop out, you know, so they talk about, they start the season in, uh, in Cleveland, go on a quick road trip to Cleveland and Texas. And they actually get swept by Texas before they come home for that series. Like you mentioned against the Royals where they play the first game in the snow with Pettit pitching. Pettit pitch is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're, they're off to a pretty good start. You know, they're hovering around 500 by the end of April. They're 11 and nine. And then they have their first series with Baltimore. It's a two game series, Tuesday, April 30th and Wednesday, May 1st, both games in Baltimore. The Yankees win them both. They're both wild games. They win 13 to 10 in nine innings. And I believe at the time, the longest nine inning game played. And then the next night, they win 11 to six in 15 innings. And that brings them from being down. Uh, that brings them from being tied to up a game and a half for the first time in first place to start May. And then the big story in May. Well, but I guess also it's worth noting that Tino really struggles. He's getting booed. Girardi really struggles. He's getting booed. Steve Summers on WFAN puts together a song parody called Jojo Girardio about how terrible Girardi is. And I, I think people need to realize like, and I had the, the page up a minute ago, but it says like, even though obviously Joe Torre got a lot of, uh, of grief because he was taking over for Buck Showalter and Tino Martinez got a ton of grief because he was taking over for Don Mattingly. Don Mattingly retired. Somebody had to play first base. Managers are high profile, but not necessarily during the course of a game. Joe Girardi was taking over for a guy that in a lot of fans' eyes should have still been on the team hitting home runs in Mike Stanley. And he was just one of those guys that people loved. Stanley. Oh, yeah. You know, even as a, as a kid, even like 92, 93, before I got into the Yankees, Stanley was just one of those guys that people talked about. I think the other thing that's worth noting from early is that the pitching staff is kind of in disarray. Rogers stinks. He stinks most of the season. Jimmy Key is kind of still recovering, plus he's getting a little old. Gooden really struggles. Kamenicki has a few starts, and then he basically fades away and doesn't pitch the rest of the year. Cone pitches well, but then in early May, they have this just incredibly scary moment with David Cohn, where he's been having some numbness and he misses a start, but then he comes back and they didn't know what it was and circulation problems, circulation problems. He was a smoker. And so they didn't know if maybe it was just, you know, sort of related to smoking. And then it turns out that he has this aneurysm in his right arm. And it's this whole thing because when it first comes out, it's not a question of whether his season's over. It's not even a question of whether his career's over. The very beginning is this could potentially be a life-threatening issue. Yeah, I mean, most of the time you hear aneurysm, and I'll be honest, owing to my age and, you know, I guess fortunate upbringing, the first time I ever heard what an aneurysm was was in this context. Yeah. But if you're at all older, when you hear aneurysm, for the most part, you think brain aneurysm which a brain aneurysm can kill you pretty instantly. So I can understand why that word 
if you you know have any life experience or are just familiar with that word, you're thinking, oh, that 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 could kill him. And I guess it could have. Yeah. So the team is maybe not up to a great start. Tory's got an increasingly short temper about this whole thing. It's it's really starting to get to him. But really, I guess through all of this, the team keeps winning and Gooden kind of steps up. He'd been I don't know if he'd officially been taken out of the rotation or if he had just sort of been, you know, it was one of those situations where they were not starting him when they didn't have to. And they're actually trying to decide for one of Cone's first missed starts, whether they should start Gooden or whether they should start Mariano Rivera and they opt for Gooden. I think that's another thing that's worth noting is that even despite all the pitching struggles, Torrey for the whole season resists the urge to start Rivera. He knows he's got a good thing in the bullpen. They bring up Ramiro Mendoza for a little while in June. That's a guy who you really don't hear about in any real way for another couple of years. Brian Bullringer is in the rotation for a couple of starts. At one point, they bring up Wally Whitehurst, who had been on a, the Mets with Gooden and Strawberry in the late 80s, and he gets a couple of starts. So they really, they'll start anybody and everybody to try and fill this hole, and they don't end up having to use Rivera as a starter at any point. And it should be pointed out that this is sort of the first, I think, within the Yankee clubhouse proving of Joe Torrey's medal. He's got to navigate not only them as a baseball team, losing the guy that had been their ace and their most dependable pitcher, their only proven commodity, really. Guy who knew how to handle the New York press, all that type of thing. And he and but not only that, but with a, a guy who's a teammate of theirs is a veteran with a potentially career and possibly even life-threatening injury. So he's got to navigate multiple layers of that. You know, is there a guy who's distraught over this and needs to be really babied for a little while? Is there somebody who you need to go to and say, oh, we're expecting you to fill up, to step up and fill Coney's shoes. So this is, it's not something that managers have to deal with every single day, but this is sort of the first test of his beyond just, setting the lineup and deciding who's going to DH. You know what I mean? And they're really throwing the same guys out there basically every day in this early part of the season. It's Girardi or Jim Laritz at catcher. It's Tino. It's Duncan. It's Boggs. It's Jeter. It's Tim Raines gets hurt at one point. So he's on the DL. And so then it's basically it's Bernie O'Neill, Gerald Williams, Sierra DH, Larrett's filling in every once in a while. Then you got a couple of sort of journeyman type guys, but that's kind of the team through April, May, June. You have this tremendously inspiring moment in May against Seattle, May 14th, when Dwight Gooden throws a no hitter. First no hitter the Yankees had had in like 10 years. I think that, well, they'd had a weird one in the 90s with Andy Hawkins where he pitched a no hitter, but he lost because the Yankees made a bunch of errors. But the first sort of real no hitter in over a decade for the Yankees, crazy, inspiring story. And guy, you know, Ben Cohn's teammate in the late 80s. 
the start before that had won for the first time since 1994, had won a game. You know, he comes, he's pitching against Seattle, a team that had not only knocked the Yankees out of the playoffs, but had a hell of a lineup, you know. Griffey, Edgar, Buhner. Jay Buhner. A-Rod. That's true, yeah. A-Rod, who technically was, A-Rod, who probably could have been rookie of the year that year. The only reason Jeter wins rookie of the year in 96 is because A-Rod had had just a few too many bats in 95. Oh, yeah, to yeah, qualify yeah. as a rookie in 96. But he, he, for all intents and purposes, A-Rod is a rookie in 96. He had been on the roster for the Mariners in the 95 playoffs, but didn't didn't get any. He, he might have gotten into a game, but he didn't start. And the things that are kind of emerging are Jeter is playing great. Pettit's pitching really, really well. He's still he's 21 and eight that year. Should have been the Cy Young winner. Bernie Williams is having kind of his breakout year. and the bullpen is just incredible. John Wetland is the closer. Rivera's otherworldly. Jeff Nelson, Brian Bowringer, even some of these guys that would later be gone, like Bob Wickman. They're kind of early on. They're winning with National League baseball. Yeah, they would, uh, you know, yeah, and they had some guys who'd been National League guys, like a Girardi. Torrey was always a National League manager. I don't want to say they're playing small ball because they do have some guys hitting home runs and, you know, the Yankees are always going to have a decent amount of power, but it was pitching guys stealing bases, definitely a different style than the quote unquote Bronx bombers that people were used to, which was in a lot of ways, their biggest rival this year. If you look at their biggest rivals in the American league at the time, Cleveland, Seattle, Baltimore. Baltimore. Those are the teams that are hitting the home runs. Is this the year that Brady Anderson hits 50 home runs? I felt like that was 97, but you might be right. It might have been 96. I can look that up. So I think the next, since we just talked about him, since we just mentioned or talked about Tory, we should talk about in June um, because this obviously sets the stage for later. I'm looking Brady Anderson up real quick. Yeah. Brady Anderson in 96 was the year he hit 50 home runs in June between games of a doubleheader. Torrey uh, gets a, the Yankees win eight to seven. Torrey gets a call in his office. His wife is asking, she's in Cincinnati. She asks where he is. Are you sitting down? I have bad news, she said. Immediately, Joe Torrey knew his brother Frank was dead. Frank had been feeling horrible for months and was in the hospital. He'd been having trouble catching his breath, even when doing simple something as simple as fetching the newspaper. Had his gallbladder removed. Nothing made him feel better. The last few times they'd spoken, Torrey noticed his brother Frank was giving up and that the discomfort had removed Frank's fighting spirit. His brother, Frank, who had been a major leaguer in his own right, had won the 57 World Series with the Milwaukee Braves, another baseball guy. And his wife says, your brother Rocco is dead. And that's when Tori finds out it's his other brother who's dead. His brother Rocco had died. He'd been watching the game, the Yankee game at home in Queens. And then collapsed and died of a heart attack. 69 years old, retired New York City police uh, officer. They'd not been very close. Rocco was 13 years older than Joe. 
He'd been a fixture since Torrey had become the manager of the Yankees. He'd been at every Sunday afternoon Yankee home game so far in that season. Torrey goes out and manages the second game of the doubleheader. So again, the guy who a few weeks earlier had been sort of having his pulse on the cone situation and also while leading a team to a first place, you know, basically first half of the season. Now his players are consoling him because his brother has suddenly died. And you start to see this theme of adversity on the team. Mm -hmm. Tori's family situation, Cone, Gooden's got a father who's in the hospital. So this idea of overcoming off the field adversity starts to gradually emerge as well. So they go into the all-star break. They're up six. But there's sort of this idea that they need to do something, increase the offense and kind of shore up the team for this postseason run. And I don't think there was this gap in power between them and these other teams. Like like you said, the only um, real move that they'd made in the first half of the year, even with Reigns being hurt and even with some of these other guys, they had traded for a journeyman, a guy who I was actually a big fan of for some reason, a guy named Mike Eldretti. He was the guy they brought in to be kind of their left-handed power guy, but he was not he was not a long-term solution. And so they start to look in other places for more help and more power off the bench. Especially it point, it, sorry, it should be pointed out by the way that as soon as they get out of the all-star break, they go down to Baltimore, four game series, sweep them all four games, and the league goes up to 10 games. They owned the Orioles in the regular season that year. You know, I I just heard this again today. They were undefeated at home against Baltimore, Cleveland, and Atlanta in 1996, which is just crazy to think about. They start to look, and one of the places they look is at Daryl Strawberry, who, like Gooden, had had the drugs. He'd had the suspensions. He'd been with the Mets, obviously, then the Dodgers, and he had one season with the Giants. The Yankees had signed Strawberry in 95, but Showalter basically never used him. He had a couple games where he hit some home runs, and it was this amazing Daryl Strawberry thing, but he was terrible in the field, and Showalter basically didn't use him throughout the playoffs. I think he used him to pinch hit twice in that series, but through the stretch run and into the playoffs, They don't use him. Strawberry is kind of ready to be done with baseball. And then he ends up playing in this independent league team in St. Paul, Minnesota, the St. Paul Saints. And he's hitting the cover off the ball against pitching that is nowhere near major league caliber, probably nowhere even near minor league caliber. But Steinbrenner, who was so enamored with the positive press he'd gotten for this reclamation project in Doc Gooden starts to think, wouldn't it be great if I did this again and reunited Strawberry and Gooden on the Yankees 10 years after the 86 Mets and it ends up Tory doesn't really want it. Bob Watson doesn't really want it. He famously gives a press conference where they ask him about Strawberry and he just repeatedly says over and over again, He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit. But Steinbrenner kind of wins the day. And shortly after, I believe it's shortly after the all-star break. I'll, I'll, I'll verify that 
Daryl Strawberry joins the team. And as I'm, I'm looking here and Watson, it says Steinbrenner's choice left Watson publicly humiliated. Uh, he had he had to act as if he changed his mind and actually wanted Strawberry. Watson had was had been willing to meet Steinbrenner's demands for more power. Talks went nowhere with Oakland about Mark McGuire and a young lefty first baseman he liked named Jason Giambi. Said so that was fine with Watson, and we're going to pivot to the next part, which is he had his eyes on another power guy. And that came in right at the trade deadline. And that was the guy Watson did want. And that was Fielder. Cecil Fielder. He had been preoccupied since spring training by Cecil Fielder. He had tried to get him in spring. The Tigers had told Watson, the GM of the Tigers had told him he wasn't trading him. He's our marquee player. In June, Tory goes to Watson and says, you have to get Ruben Sierra out of here. <laughs> He's driving me insane. There's the story where Ruben Sierra went into Tory and said, why am I not playing? And Tory went through every guy on the roster, like every outfielder and DH and said, do you think you should be playing over this guy? And he said, no. Do you think you should be playing over this guy? No. And then at the end, he's like, but why am I not playing? He explained the whole situation to him. I'm not using, I'm not using you here because of this. I'm not using you here because of that. And Sierra seems to get it all. And then finally he just says, why? Yeah, but why am I not playing? He had had his agent, his agent had called Showalter the previous year and basically asked why. Sierra wasn't being used more, which is ironic because Showalter used Sierra quite a bit. And then apparently the agent did the same thing, I think, the following year with Tori. And Tori didn't have any more patience for it than Buck Showalter did. It's funny, I'm looking through this same book, this uh, Birth of a Dynasty book that you have a copy of too. And when you look up Ruben Sierra in the, in the index, the first thing that comes up, it says Sierra Ruben. And then the first little heading is hostility of <laughs> so. well and it the Sierra thing is and by all accounts at least from what I've heard he was much better at this point but when the Yankees reacquired him seven years later in 2003 it was seen as a way of Steinbrenner punishing Tory because he knew he'd had such a rough go with him in 96 that when they brought him back there was some talk that like oh that's to stick it to Tory but then he was on the team for like three years and he was like the ideal citizen. Yeah. And he, he had a big hit in one of those games of the world series. It was a game they ended up losing. He had a big hit in the game. Was it game five? I think that they ended up, where was it four? Cause they were going to go up three, one, I think. Yeah. The Jeff Weaver game. Yeah. Yeah. The right. Jeff Weaver game. He had a big, I think it was a triple actually that he had. You're right. Ruben Sierra did hit a triple in that game. <laughs> yeah. I think he's probably still out of breath, but the outfielders probably had to knock themselves unconscious for mm-hmm. Ruben Sierra. To get, anyway, so Sierra tells reporters, I don't like people lying to me. He's been lying to me since spring training when he said I was going to play the outfield, said I was going to be the DH no matter what. And now I don't play. Tori at this point is actually using Gerald Williams as DH over Sierra, which I would admit would be an, an insult. So he calls him into his office. He explains the, the defensive abilities of others like Gerald Williams and Ruben Rivera and some of these guys and Sierra kind of understands it says all these things and then just keeps asking why am i not playing so yeah tory wants him out and they pull up and this was another one of those things this is another thing sort of like with the fog of time that maybe maybe people don't realize cecil fielder was a big deal you got to figure this was before barry bonds blew up literally in the late 90s 
This was before McGuire, before Sosa. I mean, evidence that McGuire was not what he would later become by the fact that the Yankees were almost able to trade for him at the deadline in 1996. I think at this point, Cecil Fielder had the most home runs of any player in the 90s. So bringing him in was not, this was not a small thing. This was a superstar that they were bringing in to basically be their full-time DH, play a little first, spell Tino a little. But this is a big superstar acquisition at the deadline. And people start to feel like the character of the team is changing a little bit. They, you know, they, they bring in Strawberry, they, they trade for Cecil Fielder. All of a sudden, although I don't think anybody was too sad to be rid of, uh, of Sierra, the character of the team is kind of changing. And you got a lot of guys who hadn't been there even a month or two earlier while the team was winning all these games. And then also in August and September, they go on a losing streak which kind of adds to this feeling of what have we done here? A couple other things to bring up also at the deadline, and it's nowhere near the Cecil Fielder deal. They make a trade with the Florida Marlins to bring in David Weathers, who becomes a big part of the bullpen in the postseason. August 22nd, they get Luis Soho off waivers from Seattle. And then a couple more trades into August. And then we can go back and, and talk about the struggles in August. August 23rd, there's a trade where, and, you know, we're in the past the regular trade deadline, but we're at the waivers deadline. You know, you can still make waiver trades. The Yankees trade Gerald Williams, who'd been a big part of the team up until that point, and Bob Wickman to the Brewers for Pat Listash, uh, Graham Lloyd, and then a player to be named later who ended up as Ricky Bones. Yeah, and Listash, who had been Rookie of the Year, I don't know the exact year, but earlier in the 90s, what the Yankees really needed was a lefty specialist. They had started the year with Steve Howe. He hadn't worked out. They'd gone through a couple of guys previously, and they'd been talking to the brewers about this Graham Lloyd, who, if you haven't seen him, he's like this six, seven Australian guy, very distinct body shape, very distinct sort of look on the mound. The brewers kept trying to get them to include Gerald Williams and the Yankees didn't want to do it, but they finally sort of give in Gerald Williams, who sadly just passed away within the last couple of months was a mentor to Jeter. He was a good friend of Jeter's that he was a guy who was beloved in the clubhouse and they were reluctant to part with him, but they finally agreed to do it because the outfield situation is getting a little better. Reigns is coming back. Reigns was injured for most of the summer, but he's coming back and they got Ruben Rivera strawberry can play a little outfield. Mike Aldretti can play a little outfield. So Gerald Williams has become, even though he's better defensively than any of those guys, he's kind of become a little bit superfluous in the outfield. They trade him. They figure List Ash is a guy who can play a little outfield. He can be a sort of a play that role that Williams had been playing. Losing Wickman hurts too, but with some of these other guys, that they what they need is lefties. So they bring these two guys in, and it's basically a disaster. List Ash had a broken foot that nobody had known about. Graham Lloyd had a 
crazy sort of issues with his left arm. He'd just taken a cortisone shot, I think, a couple days earlier before the trade, and the Brewers had failed to disclose it. So Watson, who was kind of sort of already in the doghouse, really goes in the doghouse once this trade comes out. So they start August 1st. They're, they got a, they're up 10 on Baltimore, and it holds as late as August 12th. It's still eight and a half. And then it really starts to precipitously drop. And by the way, none of this is them playing Baltimore and getting swept. It's just starting to drop precipitously. They get swept. They lose three out of four, I guess, in Seattle in August. And it's down to five and a half. By the end of August, on August 31st, when they uh, actually win their last two games of August against the Angels, it's down to four as they head into September. And as they get into September, at one point, by September 15th, as they finish up a series with Toronto, it's down to two and a half as they get ready to head into a series with Baltimore at home on the 18th, 19th, and 20th. I guess we should also point out that at some point in there, David Cohn came back. Before we do that, we did miss another important transaction one that's important really for two different reasons, both for the role that this guy ended up playing and also what it meant for somebody else on the team. And that is that on, and I'm just trying to get on August 30th, which is basically right before the deadline, the trade deadlines up, but you can still sign guys if they clear waivers, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to have them on the roster before September 1st, if they were going to play in the playoffs. August 30th, they make a trade. They trade away some some minor leaguers and they bring in Charlie Hayes, who's a right-handed right. hitting third baseman. Hayes, who'd actually been the Yankees' regular third baseman in 92, the year before they brought Wade Boggs in. Boggs, who hits from the left and, you know, was an all-time great hitter, mostly, you know, early in his career when he was with Boston. He had no home runs and a, a 259 average against lefties and they were the Yankees were generally struggling against left-handed hitters. So they bring in Hayes to kind of spell Boggs and Boggs is infuriated by this. He says, I'll get 3000 hits somewhere. And Tori had made reference to the fact that Boggs looked a little tired at times. So Boggs in the clubhouse before the game loudly yells to one of the clubhouse boys, hey, can you get someone to carry my bats onto the field? I'm tired. So, Which is kind of interesting because, you know, in this book, and, and most of this I'm quoting from is the Joel Sherman book, but when they acquired Boggs in uh, the end of 92, and I do have to just tell a little bit of a personal story here uh, because I feel like it's timely. My father's really good friend who unfortunately just passed away about a week ago, uh, he was a big Red Sox fan, even though he grew up in New York. He was a big Red Sox and Cowboys fan. He had a, his favorite player was Wade Boggs, you know, in the 80s. And they had gotten a cat in probably somewhere in 91, 92, somewhere like that. They'd gotten a kitten and they had named the cat Boggs. That's right. By the time the cat was two, Boggs was a Yankee. So they had to spend 10 or 12 years with a cat named Boggs. 
after he was on the Yankees and, and had some famous moments as a Yankee. Um, so we always just kind of thought that was funny and uh, a little timely because uh, like I said, unfortunately he, uh, he just passed away. But um, so they, they acquired Boggs in the 92 off season before 93 said against the wishes of then GMG Michael and manager Buck Showalter, they were concerned he was on the decline said Michael and Showalter also worried about Boggs's self-absorption with his hitting stats and bizarre behavior as a Red Sox that including, among other things, talking on primetime with Barbara Walters about his four-year affair. And Boggs was also, you know, he was also from Tampa. So he was at the time that was when Steinbrenner was suspended. So there was all these questions about his sort of relationship with their ownership. And, but it said, Boggs surprisingly elated the Yankees by being a good teammate. He was indeed obsessed with his numbers, especially staying on track for 3,000 hits. He was filled with idiosyncrasies, but in those early 90s teams, his professionalism to a team with guys like Mel Hall was something they sorely needed at the time. But he was, you know, I think it's interesting when you talk to people, most Red Sox fans from like the 80s era, even though there were times, I mean, if you think about it, if they win that game in game, you know, if they win game six or game seven, Boggs is the best position player, right? On the first Red Sox team to win a world series in 68 years. Yeah, probably that, that time period. I mean, you got a couple of you know, Jim Rice was also in the hall of fame, but yeah, no Boggs in 86 probably would have been. Yeah. But what I'm saying is he's not like glowingly regarded by Red Sox fans of that era, at least not most of them. I think, you know, I've heard examples of like, he'd be the kind of guy, and I I don't know how fair this is, but like second and third, two outs in the bottom of the eighth inning, and he'd be up there making sure he worked a walk. And it would be like, okay, that's better than grounding out. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I think there was some sort of criticism of that, like that he was a bit of a selfish player from a stats standpoint. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but Mattingly and Boggs hated each other. And it's not entirely clear why. Other than the envy of each. <laughs> Which is funny because you're right. As a kid, I remember thinking how much they looked like each other. But it's at one point when Mattingly was coaching for the Yankees in like 2004, 2005, and the Yankees had traded for A-Rod, Mattingly very famously said to Jeter, I put up with Boggs. You can put up with a rod. <laughs> so they do, they bring in Hayes. There starts to be this idea. It's like the other guy who's really angry about bringing in Charlie Hayes. Do you know who the other guy in the team host was really upset about that? No. Layritz. Cause Layritz had kind of, he was mainly the catcher, but he'd also oh, been yeah. playing some third, playing some outfield. And then all of a sudden they bring in all these guys, they bring in fielder to play first. And all of a sudden, all these positions that Larence had kind of been able to be the super sub at they're gone. So he's upset. And so there's this growing sort of, whether it's guys coming in who are hurt guys coming in, who are replacing guys who have been on the team for a while, Boggs, Larence, that type of thing, guys who've been traded for guys who had been on the team for a while, like a Gerald Williams type of guy the team is kind of a little bit in disarray in September. There's concern. They've sold their soul. You know, just made too many moves to be a coherent team. And we'll we'll talk about this when we get to the playoffs, but like 
the number of guys on that team, on that playoff roster, who hadn't been on the team in 95 or even hadn't been on the team at the beginning of 96, it's like a third to half of the guys. So we do have to, let's just circle back real quick to September 2nd, Labor Day in Oakland. And that's when David Cohn makes his return. And, the, you know, there's a lot of this. I was in fifth grade. I, I remember was, watching this game. Well, you always got to top me. <laughs> um, so what I was saying is I remember a lot of these, this team and a lot of sort of the, I remember the playoffs and I remember a lot of the things surrounding it. I don't necessarily remember watching live a lot of the regular season games. This game, I remember watching. And it was Labor Day. It was a couple days before I started fifth grade. Yep, Uh, Labor Day. Yep. So he starts in Oakland. And this is actually particularly timely now, if you think about it, for different reasons. Yeah. Because of the Kershaw thing. He was obviously on a pretty serious pitch count. And he is pitching great. Again, people thought possibly, you know, possibly his life was over. Probably his career was over. Definitely his season is over. And here he is on September 2nd. He's pitching. He's back in, you know, he's he's back on the mound. He's pitching for the Yankees at a time when they really need it. They're they're The wheels are coming off a little bit. And he is throwing a no hitter. He's in there in the seventh inning. Charlie Hayes makes a nice play to rob Mark McGuire of a single. He's at 85 pitches. His father is in the stands, and he told fans that if they try to use to if they're going to try to pull him, they'll have to use that tractor to pull him off the field. He said Cohen had resolved the night before to pitch well enough and long enough to get the ball to Rivera. He's obviously at that point right now, but he's not he's not ready to come out. But finally, they. Tory decided one day, albeit a great day, was not worth risking everything ahead of the Yankees. So David Cohn, who just four months earlier had worries he might lose his hand, departed after seven no-hit innings. And I think that shows, you know, Cohn has not been around the team most of the year. But he, Tory tells him, you're coming out. And he goes, he, leave, he leaves the game. Rivera does let up a hit, so they don't preserve the no-hitter. But the Yankees win. Now, again, the slide continues into September, but they do have David Cohn back. And that's probably as good a place as any to leave this story. The Yankees are headed to the playoffs. They've got their ace back, and they're poised to return to the World Series for the first time in 15 years. Andrew and I will pick it up next time with the 96 playoffs and one of the most exciting postseason runs in baseball history. I also wanted to get serious for a minute. Those of you who listen to the Sports History Network may be aware that mental health and the importance of mental health awareness has touched the lives of some of our hosts recently. And you can check out the most recent episode of the Football History Dude to hear Jeremy tell his story. All of us here at SHN just wanted to remind you that nothing, not even sports history, is as important as caring for yourself and your loved ones. So if you feel like you need some help, please don't hesitate to get the help you need. And if you don't know where to turn, check out www.mentalhealth.gov. Take care of yourselves and goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... 
We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.